You are listening to the Rama Blueprints Extra Commentary by Roberto Ariel Vargas. In this extra for the Rama Blueprints, we hear from Roberto Ariel Vargas, a true son of San Francisco's Mission District and a lifelong member of the Real Alternatives Program family. He comments about the recent episode of The Roots of Rap, Mitchell Salazar, Loyal to the Soil, and the parallels between his and Mitchell's life. Here's Roberto Ariel Vargas, interviewed by our host, Socorro Gamboa. We are recording our, our carnal, our hermano, our amigo, longtime community warrior and organizer, Roberto Ariel Vargas. Uh, welcome to the Rama Blueprints. I'm your host, Socorro Gamboa. Roberto is the Associate Director, Center for Community Engagement and Senior Staff for the Community Engagement Program and the Research Action Group for Equity of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of the University of California, San Francisco. Well, Ariel, welcome, and we are so um, honored to have you with us today. We want to hear what you thought of when you listened to The Roots of Rap Part 3, Mitchell Salazar, Loyal to the Soil. Uh, thank you, Socorro. I, this uh, piece was so powerful for me as, as uh, all of the podcasts that you all have put in together has been so far. It hit me very deeply personally and also pushed me to reflect on my own growth and development professionally. So thinking about the scene that you all laid out with Mitch escaping family trauma, right? Family trauma that many of us have experienced, including myself, which sort of laid the groundwork of me identifying with Mitch more than perhaps I ever had. Hearing about Mitch growing up on Bernal Heights in the Mission District, I, you know, I had always associated Mitch with the Mission District, but hearing about his childhood on Bernal also sort of deepened my identification with him. You know, I was born on Bernal Heights and spent my childhood there too, going to Paul Rivera Elementary, spending time on Cortland as a kid, and hearing about Mitch beginning his life there and understanding how that, as he described, working class diverse family community shaped him the same way it shaped me. And he also talked about the strong presence of black folks there in that community, which was something for me that is so beautiful and that is now really absent, sadly, from San Francisco, right? I mean, at least in the way it was in those years in the 70s that Mitch describes, it was much more vibrant, larger black community in San Francisco. And hearing about Mitch's hustle, right, and how he was developing as a young hustler from a very young age helps me to understand more that drive that, that Mitch had, right? Mitch was always moving, always on the move, always negotiating deals, strategizing. And so hearing about how he began as a hustler, even as a kid working at all the stores on Cortland, as a teenager, beginning to sell weed and acid and mescaline, right? And me having some similar experiences as a teenager, 
living in poverty at that time and and seeing the the, the economic needs in my house and wanting to you know hustle in, in some of the same ways that Mitch saw available to him, right? So really fascinating to me to hear all these stories and, and help me understand and identify with Mitch even more deeply, right? Hearing from Mitch about how Jim Queen mentored him and Jim is also a mentor to me, you know, and part of my education in this philosophy of understanding ourselves as, as Jim often says, as first person experts, no one else knows our reality or our experience as well as we do, right? That was something that really resonated with Orlando Torriente on one of, you know, one of the previous episodes you all have shared, resonated with Mitch, resonated with many of us who walked through rap and were taught that our experience in our communities mattered and made us experts in understanding what the needs are in our communities and how best to address those needs gave us the power to have voice for our communities. Interesting when I hear Mitch say that this rap philosophy is also about the power to move institutions and change institutions by bringing community expertise and insight to bear, right? And, and as Mitch says, otherwise, the institutions are functioning in a vacuum. So powerful to hear Mitch say that, you know, and to think about what my role is, you know, that long title that you just laid out is very much a community engagement in there several times, right? And it's because we, I and many of my colleagues that do this work at UCSF, we try to bring community voice to research at UCSF, to how UCSF does education, to how UCSF strategizes for employing people in order so that it benefits local communities through our anchor institution work. All of this, for me at least personally, came from my training at RAP. And, and I'm hearing Mitch talk about the training that he got and the structures that he built at RAP to expand access for young people to all these lessons like by way of an education at the Real Alternatives uh, Program High School, RAP High School, and him during his tenure, you know, expanding what, as Mitch says, began as a social movement, volunteers, right, and became a full-fledged four-year high school, right? And I know during the years that I was working there, also having connections to the Step to College program with Dr. Jake Berea, helping our young folks to, to get into San Francisco State University. So even, even building the ladder into higher education for our young people from our community. And as many folks in the podcast say, that multi-service site was a brilliant idea. And as Jim says, Mitch brought his brilliance to bear to help make that a reality for the community. It's a model that really makes sense, and sadly, it rarely exists today, right? The on-site access to mental health care, physical health care, case management, employment, arts, mm -hmm. services, a full four-year high school, both the, the, the RAP high school students and the TAP students right there next door with Hilltop, right? So I was also trying to reflect on 
where I was in the trajectory of Mitch's development at rap, right? And so he says, for example, he started at rap in 1980. Well, nine mm -hmm. years old, in, in 1980, myself, I was running around the streets with uh, several youth groups. I was part of the 22nd Street Midgets, <laughs> which is <laughs> it's really funny to say now, right? Uh, TSM. You know, a lot of those youngsters, they grew up, folks like Fonso and Zane and, and Teddy. And we were all running around the streets together. And I moved away with my family to the East Coast. My pop had work that took us to D.C. But if it wasn't for me moving away, I would have been like a lot of these youngsters, either caught up deeper in the streets at that moment or given opportunities out like a lot of my friends ended up at rap, right? So other things I heard in this podcast, like, you know, Ronnie, uh, Pastor Ronnie talks about his mom bringing Mitch to his house on San Carlos and 19th Street. He says he brought him because Ronnie was knee deep in trouble. I remember going to that house on San Carlos with Ronnie back when mm -hmm. I was a teen. And I remember at that same time, a little earlier in my life, when my mom brought Ray Balboron home, to my house because I was knee deep in trouble, right? And so just all these different parallels in our experiences, just um, once again, it, it made me feel like this is like a documentation of my life and, and my community, my community's life trajectory together. When you talk about Socorro in the podcast, the merging of youth leaders with PhDs in streetology and the staff that right. brought them and certified training from elsewhere, I was reminded of when you came to work at RAP and you were recently from L.A. and you had your training and certification as a social worker. And I know for me, at least as a teenager, I'm thinking, you know, does this lady cut it? You know, does she have what it takes to be here? But to hear it so beautifully stated and so succinctly, simply stated, we as a community needed folks like yourself, you know, we needed people with training, with structure, with education to help strengthen what we had, the passion, love for community and the identification with those experiences, those, those streets, right? And you all brought your love to serve community, right? So that was also really powerful for me to hear. For me, it was, I was a kid, I was a teenager. So it was like, it was just happening. That's, that was my experience. But to hear people describe it as a strategy, right? A strategy for building a community organization so that it has capacity to serve more, more of its community and, and to serve its community more deeply. It's impressive to me to know that Mitch with all the mentors he had around him was able to help build that for our community. When you, you're sitting there listening to, you know, the podcast, this episode in particular, and when you hear the word, when you hear the term loyal to the soil, yeah. what does that mean for you? And I'm hearing you about the parallel. And yeah. I'm thinking, how many other young men or young women like yourself who have now, well, older now, and are you know, in these positions that you're holding and that you're representing, yeah. what that means for you. You know, obviously yeah. Mitchell has passed on and 
you know, he's not here to, to speak to that, but you're here. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean a little bit more to you? Loyal to the soil. Yeah. So being born and raised in the Mission District, one of the first ideas that comes to me is we have so much love for that community that we're from and we want to give back to it. We want to nurture it. Sometimes we're engaged in some destructive activities there growing up, you know, when we don't see other ways to get affirmation, to get acknowledgement, to get economics, right? But I think ultimately, like when you see what happened during COVID, right? The pandemic was like, who mobilized? The same people, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Roberto Hernandez was interviewed in this podcast. Roberto was one of the same people born and raised here in the community who we all activated, you know, whether it was trying to get people vaccinated or get people food or get people access to housing. It was the same people that mobilized to deal with gang violence in the 90s, right? Same people that mobilized to try to get community access to affordable housing after the dot-com boom, right? I mean... It's just just being loyal to our soil, to our community, wanting to serve and love, love and serve the community as, you know, our rap philosophy has guided us to do, right? You know, that was something I heard Mitch say, like this rap was a social movement, right? And as, as you and I have discussed, I really believe that in our lifetime, we watched the evolution of rap from Mm -hmm. a, a social movement, an idea mostly volunteer, not even with government funding at the beginning when there was a classroom, when there was people taking young people on field trips or providing young people with access to jobs. But with Mitch, you know, pulling together that passion, his hustle, his hustle for fiscal love, as he would like to say, (laughs) right? That's right. The foundation and government dollars. And the element that, that you and others brought, Roban San Miguel, Concha Salcedo, others with training from universities, right, uh, to help structure our, the spirit of our love to serve community, the spirit of our, our self-determination that rap is about, mm-hmm. and the willingness to challenge systems, right? I mean, going to the city and saying, we are serving the kids, and so you should give us some of our tax dollars back to continue to do that service. But we're also going to challenge you about how you treat our children at Juvenile Hall, right? We're going to challenge the SFPD for for how they're treating young people and families on the streets, right? So being willing to challenge large systems and institutions to do better to serve the community, right? Which is something I believe I take to my work at UCSF, right? Jose Esteva takes to his work at the San Francisco Unified School District. The same spirit Deb Koffler takes into media arts, right? Carrying on that spirit of rap as well as that spirit of mission media arts, right? Many others, Jesus Yanez on the police commission, right? John Torres with the CRN and now with, I think he's with Ceasefire in Oakland. Tracy Brown, you know, down at City Hall, right? Uh, Valerie Toulier at the PUC and elsewhere, right? Just all of us taking our training from rap and moving it to to work that we're doing in other institutions, right? So move 
from a social movement to an organization, became a collaborative when I was mm -hmm. there uh, as director 20 years ago. And then, you know, once again, re reshifted to be a social movement, a philosophy, an approach mm -hmm. to how we deal with systems, how we love and serve our communities, right? And, um, you know, you mentioned um, quite a few individuals, right? And it makes me think about one of the uh, rap, uh, you know, principles and philosophy, and that is uh, to deinstitutionalize the institution, right? Yes. It's interesting to hear you say that that hustle when people mm -hmm. begin to understand, like, you know, you had to come from somewhere because obviously Mitch, you know, didn't, you know, go to college, right? You know, he, he didn't get a university degree, but he knew how to surround himself with really smart, smart people. And yes. he knew where to pull from folks. Mm -hmm. And when you're sitting in those walls at UCSF in those conference rooms, I imagine, and you're doing, you know, your digital presentations or you're talking about these disparities, what drives you to continue to, to keep that loyalty to your soil? Well, to begin with, I, ne I never aspired to be in academia, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't end up at UCSF because I want to be an academic or a researcher. Mm -hmm. I ended up there because I wanted to see how I could use that tool to serve my community. What resources existed there that I could pull from to serve the communities that I identify with, which are primarily low-income communities of color. And it just so happened when they hired me, my work was to leverage UCSF's resources out of the Department of Family and Community Medicine to begin with, specifically to leverage them to Visitation Valley, the Mission District, and Baby Hunters Point. So three communities that I, you know, I identified deeply with at that time, I was still living in the Bayview when I first got hired, um, had spent half my life there, born and raised in the mission. So it was, they were really hiring me to do what I wanted to do was to serve the communities that I identified with by using UCSF resources as a tool to do that. And of course they get, you know, it's, it's mutual benefit, right? It's not, they're not granting us with any wisdom or resources without getting anything in return. They get much more in return from the community by having a space for UCSF learners to learn how do you do community health? How do you get to better health with patients that are suffering the highest rates of diabetes or heart disease? A few years ago, I, I, because of how powerful institutions were beginning to uh, come to terms with who they were and what they do and what they wanted to be, relative to social justice, I was even able to begin saying, I'm here to decolonize UCSF. <laughs> when people ask me, what are you here to do? What is your job? I'd say, I, you know, this is my long title, but honestly, I'm here to decolonize UCSF, right? And, um, and it was funny because uh, in that moment, there were other leaders in the institution that would even say the same. And, and, and sadly, I think, you know, very quickly, um, people got less comfortable saying and hearing those things. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to try and, you know, keep it going, right? Um, Good. Yeah, whether it's how we relate to people with our research or uh, how we hire or procure goods and services with our anchor institution effort, looking for ways 
to make UCSF's relationship with community less colonial, less uh, extractive, right? And much more um, mutually beneficial, respectful, um, and in partnership. So that, that's my work. And it, mm. like I said, it's very much influenced by what I learned at RAP. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I think about your time at RAP, when you came in as a, a younger staff person, you were, I think you came in to do Gaius work, if I believe so. That's Gaius yes. being the straight outreach program. Well, I began as a child with rap. Right, right, right. Like a little kid, my sister worked at rap, my father worked at rap, and um, because my parents were revolutionaries, we didn't get Christmas presents, right? So I would go to rap to get Christmas presents because they were right. Christmas presents for poor kids like me, right? <laughs> so that's how my relationship began with rap, going on camping trips with my family, trips to uh, Great America or the beach, you know, things that, rap offered for us poor children, poor economically uh, children from the barrio, right? So that was my beginning with rap. And then later as a teenager, you know, like uh, like Ronnie said, knee deep in trouble, that's where I mm -hmm. found myself. And thankfully, Ray Balberon helped me out. And then Ray told me that one day, I'm, you're gonna pay me back. He said, but the way you're gonna pay me back is you're gonna come serve your community, right? And I can't remember if he called me and told me to come do it or if I was looking for a job or, you know, I just remember when I was uh, about 19, 18, 19, needing a job and, you know, Ray saying he wanted me to come work for him with Gaius doing street outreach. And, uh, you know, I had to interview. I don't think I had to convince Ray because Ray had love for me already as my case right. manager. Right. Um, but I had to convince Mitch because Mitch didn't know me. Mitch knew my family. And so I think because he knew my family, he saw that there was some promise potentially in me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I remember interviewing with him. And, you know, he thought I did all right. But he brought in Tom Mayfield because Mayfield was the director yeah. city for the Mayor's Gang Prevention Program. And he had Mayfield interview me. And at a certain point, Mayfield just kind of shut the interview down. I was like, you know, what? what the fuck makes you think you could talk to these youngsters right <laughs> and i said what you mean man he says you know what do you know right i said man it's these are my these are my fucking streets i grew up right here you know what i mean this my barrio this where i'm from okay i, mm -hmm. I, I ran these streets too right and he's uh why didn't you say that from the beginning i said well what what job interview you ever told somebody something like that you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> How am I supposed to know you want me to come right. link my street credentials in a job interview, you know? <laughs> so that was a funny moment now when I think back on it. But I remember getting really upset in the interview and they started laughing. Like, all right, man, you're hired. I think it, keeping it real is what's very important, you know, being authentic, being yourself. And, and I think sometimes you walk in and I can imagine that that's probably... Uh, something you have to do at the university, but it's interesting to hear you say That's that right. you you tell them, I'm here to decolonize it. Well, what it really affirmed for me is my relationship with Mitch changed in my lifetime, right? And my view of who he was and my assessment of him changed dramatically in my lifetime. When mm -hmm. I worked for him as a young man, I saw 
behaviors that I thought, you know, were full of contradiction, right? And I know that as a young man trying to like pull myself out of the reality of the streets, I felt disappointed like Mitch wasn't living up to my expectation of what it meant to be a leader, you know, of a community organization, especially a community organization that I, I had love for. I realized later in life when I, you know, stepped in, not even at the level of what he was doing, he was the executive director of a very large organization. I was the director of a, a rap collaborative. It was not the same, it was, it was a lot smaller, less responsibility. And even then it was super difficult, right? And super challenging to me to keep people employed, a lot of people employed, right? And to just deal with the crises that go on in the lives of mm -hmm. the family we serve, right? That, the lives of the young people. The first tenure I had there as a teenager, I buried nine kids that I worked directly with over three years, right? And that was really traumatic. But then, to, you know, to try to do that work, go through the same traumas of burying children and trying to keep folks employed and competing with other organizations that you love and respect for the same meager resources that's available for all of us to do this work. There were just so many different challenges to it that I said, I really appreciate more now what, what the brilliance of what Mitch brought to our community to be able to do what he did and the challenges that go with it. You know, I was judging him for maybe how he was self-medicating or with the trauma of it all in whatever ways he was dealing with it. And now as a grown man, because I was only a teenager at that time, now I say, wow, I can understand. I can, once again, identify, right? And 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 just uh, appreciate more deeply the value of what he was doing. And I, I'm thankful I got to tell him that before he died, long before he died, before he knew he was sick. I did tell him, hey, Mitch, you know, when I was young, I, ju I judged you when mm -hmm. I was young. And I realize now how difficult it was to do what you did. And I want to apologize and tell you I appreciate what you did for our community and how difficult that was. And he appreciated that. I think that was part of part of our healing, being able to heal that relationship together. One of the things that Estelle Garcia, Dr. Garcia from former Instituto Executive Director says that Mitchell came into a spiritual understanding in the end. He started to kind of recognize what were the places that he needed to make amends. And some of us are, al are alive to be able to do that still. Yeah. And I think in the episode is to, is to speak to the people about not some Pollyanna story, but the truth, the story that you hear from Mitchell, from his own words. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. I, I guess I, one of the things we would ask is, with all the knowledge and the wisdom that you have gained, to this stage in your life right now, and what words of advice would you give to your 15-year-old self at this point oh, right man. now in life? Wow, 15, I was so lost. My mother and I left Nicaragua because there were rumors of me going to war because 15 was mandatory military age in Nicaragua in that moment, and we were living in Nicaragua. And my mom didn't want me to go to war, so she brought me here. And I was with my father stayed behind. So I was here when my mom was doing two jobs, trying to 
make ends meet for her and I. And that's when I began running the streets again as a teenager. So I think one word of advice I would give myself is all those older guys in the neighborhood don't know how to be men either. And not to follow their example or their advice. They're still figuring it out themselves and they're still just teenagers. Another thing I, I think I would tell myself is to take education more seriously than I did. And I have a master's, but it was a long, windy road. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I could have gone further if I wouldn't have got so distracted and other things. And I would say that peace, peace is very valuable and to try to keep, keep peace as best I can because I grew up around a lot of violence and was mm. conditioned, conditioned to react in unhealthy ways. So I would say to try to keep the peace always. Let me, let me probe a little bit. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, the healthy practices that you have now, that you practice, that you do? Oh, I'm so thankful that uh, I found uh, the Native traditions again rediscovered them because they were introduced to me as a baby with ceremonies, the way I was baptized in these traditions. But I had to find them all over again on my own, right? I couldn't, I didn't want to follow what I think my parents were trying to give me. And they didn't, they didn't really practice these traditions anyway. So I did have to discover them, thankfully, through my wife, actually. And they just uh, they give me so much joy to sing the songs of my ancestors and to watch our children sing the songs of our ancestors and hear the wisdom from our elders about how to interact and exist with Mother Earth, with the sun, with the water, to be respectful of all these elements and to be appreciative of all these elements. So those things sustain me, give me hope, make me thankful. And that's been a really important part of my healing journey. Interestingly, Rowan San Miguel, the associate mm -hmm. rap, brought these traditions to a lot of us, but I wasn't ready, so I barely noticed. <laughs> you know, it didn't catch my attention when she brought right. them there. Nineteen, I wasn't ready, but thankfully, when I was ready, um, my wife reintroduced me. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's good. It's important to find that balance, you know. And so I want to thank you for sharing with us your wisdom. And, and we've been speaking with uh, Roberto Ariel Vargas, longtime colega who I call like my spiritual soul brother. In many ways, we, we work together at RAP and we have a long history, a lot of laughs, a lot of lagrimas, but a lot of good work. So I'm appreciative of you and I thank you. And this is the Rama Blueprints podcast. Gracias. Thank you for listening to this extra, which are intended for the listener to get a deeper understanding of the series as a whole. This extra was produced by Darren J. De Leon and Socorro Gamboa for the Five Sisters Audio Garden. And remember, to listen is to heal. All power to the people.